Exercise should be synonymous with movement. It's really just about movement. So that comes up over and over again. Just get your body moving and get it moving at a vigorous pace. I mean, Galen actually defined exercise as vigorous movement that makes you pant or breathe heavily. They intuitively understood that this was good for both body and mind. And also there was a lot of writing about diet and the importance of a healthy diet and a diet that's not too rich. Um, the kinds of foods they ate were quite different from we might what we might eat today, but they had wine and they had you know rich foods. And so there were recommendations against those things as well. You know, I was able to trace in the book that there are periods in history when exercise sort of goes out of fashion and sort of disappears. The whole ancient Greek and Roman empire, that whole culture, which idealized athletes and athletic competition, and really there's a kind of worshiping of the human body, that begins to disappear with the rise of Christianity in around the fourth century AD. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard is a guest for this episode, author Bill Hayes. Now, Bill wrote a fascinating book that really, this is, this to me is a fascinating conversation. Um, if you listen to All About Fitness with any regularity, you, you know a couple things about me. Number one, you know, I always say a few of the same things. I am trying to figure out how to do a bingo card so we can play all about fitness bingo. That's one thing I'm looking at. I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm going to do that. Other things you might know about me is I'm a big, big, big fitness geek. I love talking about fitness, the science of exercise, all everything. That's why I started the podcast is I love having these conversations. And most importantly, I love sharing these conversations with you because I want you to learn about exercise. More importantly, I want you to learn, my goal is to help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And here's the thing, if we do it right, we kind of add a few years, we extend our lifespan. So that's my goal, that's one thing about me. I love talking about fitness. Another thing is I like history, I'm a history buff. I grew up around politics, I grew up in DC, I grew up going to all the museums, American History Museum, and I'm a big fan of history which when I combine the two, I love learning about the history of the fitness industry and I love learning about the history of exercise. And in my career, I've been very fortunate to have worked with some of the leading brands in fitness like Nautilus and like Stairmaster who have shaped how we sweat. And that's why I want to interview, interview Bill, interview my guest today is Bill wrote the book Sweat, A History of Exercise. And the thing is, we can trace the modern fitness industry back to the late 1960s, mid, late 1960s and beyond. And you probably have heard me talk about that. But what Bill does is Bill goes way, way back. He goes way back to find out first, why do we start exercising? How do we start exercising? What motivated us to start exercising? And this is this conversation today. I'm going to keep the introduction short. This conversation today, this is this was one of probably one of my favorite interviews to do in a long time because we talked about the history of exercise. And here's the thing, guys. We identify some of the first fitness influencers. So if you're a big fan of social media, if you get influenced by people who, who get you moving, we're going to talk about where this came from and how this evolved and how exercise and fitness evolved and got us to where we are today. 
On this episode of All About Fitness, it is all about the history of why we exercise with Bill Hayes, the author of Sweat, A History of Exercise. Today on All About Fitness, we're speaking with author Bill Hayes. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and and I loved your book. I loved your book, Sweat, because I'm a history geek. I, I people, the, my listeners know that that I talk about the history of fitness quite a bit. So, what was it? What was the inspiration? And we just talked about this before I hit record. But what was your inspiration for the book, Bill? Well, I have loved to work out and exercise throughout my life, um, but it was one day about 12 years ago, climbed atop a Stairmaster, which is the cardio machine I've always most loved and feel like is one of the very best cardio workouts. And I pushed in my program. I still remember it was fat burner and it was for 25 minutes and I put down my towel and my water. And for some reason on that day, I just paused and I looked out at the gym floor at all these people lifting machines on bozu balls, doing pull-ups and chin-ups and yoga. And I just thought, how did we all end up here in gyms? And if I were to trace a line backward in time, where would I land? It was really just a question. I just kept looking and then I thought, I got to go find an answer to this question. And I pushed stop and got off the Stairmaster and I went to the public library. And that's where this whole journey began to write Sweat. All right, and let's let's contextualize this a little bit, though. You're not just a guy who got on a, a piece of equipment and said, where did this all begin? But you're also a writer, correct? I mean, you have a background in, re- in writing and reporting. So up until this point, what, what's been like, what, how would you, would you, would you classify yourself as a reporter who also writes books? Or would you classify yourself as an author who will sometimes pick up, pick up pieces on, on assignment? I'd say I'm an author, and since moving to New York, I've also become a photographer. So I'm an author, a photographer, and then I also write for the New York Times just on occasion. I'm not a staff writer. Sweat, my new book, is really in structure similar to my first three books. Um, so it's a combination of history and personal narrative or memoir, um, interweaving the two. And I did the same thing here with Sweat, tracing the history of exercise from ancient Greece and Rome through the centuries, including the Renaissance, as you know, and up to the present day and the pandemic. Um, But I've also written a couple of memoirs, which are pure memoir. I've done a book of photography and uh, do occasional guest pieces for the New York Times. So you're right, when when I had that idea, I guess a light bulb went off in my head, but really it was just like, I thought I would go to the public library and find a book on the history of exercise. And when I didn't, I think that's, I didn't find a book that sort of answered that question comprehensively. That's maybe when I thought, huh, maybe, maybe there's a book here. But it took a while. It took a while for the book to develop and for me to figure out how to do it and do all the research and so forth. Well, real quick, it's funny, as I was reading it, it didn't occur to me, but, but as you describe it, it sounds, did you ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Um, about, yeah. Would you would you say because in the in that for listeners in the book the author goes through like how he prepares his motorcycle and takes care of his motorcycle and kind of uses that what is an allegory for for life and kind of like finding kind of it was like his own self discovery so mm-hmm. what was it so let's take a look back in your journey back to the beginning of fitness what did you find? I mean, I think for a lot of people out there, I think especially for the younger generation, when I speak with people in their twenties. 
they have no idea of what fitness, how fitness was done 20 years ago, let alone years and years ago. So what, what yeah. was it? What was like, what was the first influence that got us moving? Well, you know, I mean, so many people, when I talk about this book or the history of exercise, they think it's has been just a 20th century phenomenon or 20th and 21st century phenomenon, um, as if it all started, you know, after World War II or something. Um, I knew that wasn't the case, but I was surprised by how far back I could go. So, um, you know, going back to Hippocrates, who's now known as the father of medicine, he was really the first to articulate in prose the benefits of exercise. Um, he wrote two, two treatises on healthy living, on diet and exercise. And um, his advice was in, in a lot of ways quite sensible. But really you could say that exercise or the origins of exercise go even farther back to the founding of the Olympic games in around 800 BC. So athletes were, of course, training, doing fitness training um, to compete in the Olympics and other athletic competitions. And even before that, there's evidence that um, in preparation for war, there was fitness training for, for fighting. Hmm. Um, but what continued to surprise me is how exercise keeps popping up over the centuries and also disappearing. I mean, it, it kind of disappears for a while and then it comes back. And one of my biggest discoveries personally was discovering a book from 1569 written by a Renaissance era physician, Girolamo Mercuriale, uh, who wrote what was really the first comprehensive book on exercise. It's called Dell'arte Gymnastica, um, which means the art of gymnastics or the art of exercise. And in this book, uh, Mercuriale, who was a physician, personal physician to a cardinal in Rome, covered every known form of exercise at that time. Mm. So walking, running, swimming, boxing, wrestling, um, even forms of movement that we wouldn't consider exercise, like laughing, crying, um, any kind of movement of the human body. And he examined these forms of exercise purely from the perspective of a doctor, the pros and cons. Um, what is good for you? What would he prescribe? And because he had access to the Vatican Library, as well as the library of this cardinal that he was serving, he had access to ancient Greek and Roman texts like Hippocrates. And uh, he knew Greek and he knew Latin, of course. And so he was able to translate them, decipher them, and incorporate their findings and their thoughts, really, into his own thoughts about exercise. So what Mercuriali really aimed to do was to revive the ancient Greek arts of exercise, which had really been lost by that point in time. Um, and the book went through several editions in his lifetime. The edition that um, I first saw was um, the first illustrated edition. And I'm sure we'll get into that as well. Well, that was what kind of struck me though, as, as you're describing finding his work and reading his work, and you described what was it was the, the fellow's name was Vivian the 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 researcher's name was Vivian I'm, I'm blanking on the last name here but yeah. when you look at that and you start digging in did you find a lot of sources because I'm interested like personally uh, Bill I've I've kind of I understand the history of fitness back to about the mid 19th century so I've never dug in to really go before that what did you find about the sources and what I want to point out what what occurred to me too was that McCurry Alley with his book. 
was the first social media influencer. Because if you look at the social media, but the printing press was the social media of the day, right? And if yeah, you're the first, really could, could we, I mean, I guess the question would be, could we classify him as the quote unquote first social media influencer? Yeah, especially when it comes to exercise and fitness. I think that's a really great point. I've never thought about it that way. But yeah, you're right. The, you know, the the printed book was still really in its infancy when he published Dell'Arte Gymnastica in 1569, um, only 100 or so years old. Um, so it was a very early example of that. And um, he was digging primarily into ancient Greek and Roman texts, relying a lot on Hippocrates, but even more so Galen, the second century Roman physician who mm. sort of succeeded Hippocrates as a father of medicine. Um, Galen also wrote a lot about exercise and diet and fitness and was very influential. However, one thing I should interject here, both about Hippocrates and Galen and Plato, who, by the way, Plato had been a competitive wrestler in athletic games, hmm. um, and Mercuriali himself, is that they did not have a factual scientific understanding of how the human body works. So um, going back to Hippocrates and Galen, they believed in the theory of the four humors, which was that the body was composed of four humors, a couple of them completely fantastical, um, bile, phlegm, um, mucus, and they did not know about the circulation of blood by the beat of the heart. Hmm. That doesn't come until William Harvey in the 18th century. So Hippocrates, Plato, Galen, Mercuriali, all these figures before um, William Harvey's discovery were basing their thoughts and their recommendations on the idea that you had to balance out these four humors within the body um, to achieve health. Or if you were ill, it was because one of the four humors was out of balance. Um, part of the reason this kind of fantastical idea about the body came about is because dissection of human cadavers was forbidden. So they just really didn't know how it was working inside. And it wasn't until that became more um, permissible that uh, a figure like William Harvey was able to make that amazing discovery that we all take for granted. I mean, speaking of Stairmaster and cardio, you know, knowing that getting the heart racing and sweating and the blood moving is all about getting the heart moving. It has nothing to do with these fantastical kind of fluids. Um, so even though Mercuriali's book is very significant and Hippocrates' thoughts very significant in Plato's, um, you still have to take it with a great assault, knowing that they didn't quite understand how everything worked. Well, what was it, what was that connection? Because I, I know that that Aristotle spoke about a vigorous a vigorous body as well as a vigorous mind. But what was that connection? That early connection between the Greek philosophers and physical activity. I mean, why were they? What did you find, or what did you learn about why they were so intertwined when we looked at it back back in the beginning? I mean, I think a lot of it was just kind of intuition and common sense. They understood that if you moved, if you got exercise that you felt better. It's the kind of thing we would just think commonsensically today. Um, sometimes it did have to do with weight loss um, and with diet, um, but um, a lot of it was really just common sense and their advice was actually quite sensible. Um, there's a quote from Plato who says, 
it is not the number of exercises, but their moderate nature that brings about a good human constitution. So he was advising, Plato was advising that people exercise, that you incorporate it into your daily life, almost like a daily workout, but not necessarily overdo it to the point of injury. And Plato knew something about that himself because he had been a competitive wrestler in the athletic games as a young man. Um, back then, we all know about the Olympic Games, but back then in antiquity, there were actually four major athletic um, competitions or festivals um, in Greece, um, Isthmia, Nemea, Delphi, and Olympia. Olympia was the biggest and the most well-known, but um, Plato actually competed at um, Isthmia. So he knew something about getting injuries and overdoing it and that sort of thing. But um, another thing that really surprises people, and I guess surprised me, was that gymnasiums, gyms, were a part of almost every town in the Greek empire in antiquity. Um, they were common and they were quite elaborate. And um, they were only accessible to men, men and boys. Women were not allowed or permitted. Um, but there were spaces for wrestling, boxing, you know, more vigorous kind of athletics, but also something as simple as walking. They had walking porticos that surrounded many of the gyms. I won't say all the gyms. And those were meant just for walking and talking, philosophizing, so forth. I mean, it's amazing how much more we could get done if we didn't have little screens in front of us or TVs or any of that. But was, what know. was interesting, when I, when I was reading through and you're, and you're kind of going through going through like the evolution from philosophy to fitness to exercise, I mean, you're right. They, they, they guessed that, that exercise was good for the brain. And we now know that vigorous exercise produces VD, BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factors. So we, we've, there's now research showing that vigorous exercise can promote the growth of new brain cells. So, yeah. And then also, too, when the, I, I, I didn't write it down, but, but one, of the, one of the people you referenced talks about breath work and being able to control breathing. And now yeah. we look at the last few years. So do you see kind of when you look back over time – do you see these kind of trends kind of popping up, the same sort of trends? And like what, what types of what kind of, what kind of things become popular throughout the ages or, or keep appearing throughout the ages, I guess would be the question. Well, definitely, um, definitely getting movement. I mean, I tell people to that um, exercise should be synonymous with movement. It's really just about movement. Um, so that comes up over and over again, just get your body moving and get it moving at a vigorous pace. I mean, Galen actually defined exercise as vigorous movement um, that makes you pant or breathe heavily. So they intuitively understood that this was good for both body and mind. Um, and also there was a lot of writing about diet and the importance of a healthy diet and a diet that's not too rich. Um, the kinds of foods they ate were quite different from we might what we might eat today, but they had wine and they had you know rich foods, and so there were recommendations against those things as well. Um, but then, you know, I was able to trace in the book that there are periods in history when exercise sort of goes out of fashion and sort of disappears. Um, the whole ancient Greek and Roman Empire, that whole culture which idealized athletes and athletic competition. And really there's a kind of worshiping of the human body 
Um, that begins to disappear with the rise of Christianity mm-hmm. in around the fourth century AD, when we're talking about in the West, really, um, there's a pivot from worshiping the body to worshiping the soul and importance placed on the soul or the spirit, the Holy Spirit, and where the body of the athlete, the Olympic athlete had been idealized in Greek and Roman culture. Now it became, or later it became the sort of image of the saint who suffered and who was perhaps emaciated, more like a monk. And it became thought in more indecent to be mm. exercising. Um, and that that was the new ideal. And that reigned for a long, long time. And it, wow. that's sort of where things intersect with Mercuriali during the Renaissance. He was trying to revive this healthier attitude about exercise, sort of in the spirit of humanism during that period of the Renaissance anyway. It's been years since I've studied this bill, but but I'm just for context. My father, my father was a Lutheran minister, so I grew up kind of in grew up being around that theology. And what's interesting is you're talking about the shift from early Greeks and Romans. We would have they would have worshipped the body, and I can see the church going, "Whoa, whoa, we don't want to we don't want to pay attention to the self. We want you to pay attention to our deity. We want you to pay attention to our God and not the right. individual self." And then when Renaissance came around, it was like let's 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 deconstruct the church and let's bring back. Is that kind of am I right in seeing that kind of that ebb and flow and in, in the influence of the church? Yeah, you're exactly you're exactly right. And you know, one other piece of it was that um, you know in ancient Greece, especially ancient Greece and Rome, they were worshiping the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods mm. and making blood sacrifices to the gods. And so part of what happens with the rise of Christianity is a kind of rejection of paganism. And the Greek culture especially was really associated with paganism. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There was this shift away from the body to a focus on the soul. And exercise sort of got lost in the dust. Um, And all those gymnasiums that had been part of Greek and Roman culture just, you know, went into ruins. And I want to come back to the gymnasiums in a second, but maybe, maybe, maybe I'm in the wrong era because I, I'm one of these people, and I don't know about you, but this time of year, like living in San Diego, I, I like to do a lot of stuff outside. I'll work out in a gym so I can be fit to do things outside. And this yeah. is the type of year where now we had the solstice a few weeks ago or the equinox, whatever it is in December, but now I can see the days are getting just a little bit longer, like a little bit lighter each day. Like I can go out for my mountain bike ride maybe five minutes later, you know, because we're getting more light. And I'm very tuned in to knowing that between like late March and mid-September are the ideal times for being outside and exercising. I feel kind of like a druid. I feel like a druid that way and that I, that I try, I'm like, Oh great. I can go out and spend out and spend more time outside and and be active. You know what I mean? It's just, but it's so interesting to hear that. Now let's come back to the early gymnasia. Can you describe, because I I think it's fascinating. and, And we started this, just for listeners, I was on a call for, for my new job, and we'll talk about that in a second, but what did the early gymnasia, what did the early workout centers, what did they look like, and what, and what type of quote-unquote equipment did they have in them? Well, they were made of, of stone and granite, and there were large, spacious sort of fields where men would work out. Um, they would lift weights. Um, they would wrestle. They would box. Um, one thing... I think really important to note is that they would exercise in the nude 
And in fact, the word gymnastics, which was part of uh, Mercuriali's title, gymnastics means exercising in the nude. Hmm. Just as at, at the athletic competitions at Olympia and Delphi and elsewhere, all those athletes competed in the nude. Um, so that was quite a big difference from how we exercise today. Um, but yeah, there were like actual, I went to Greece as part of this trip, you know, I, I mean, part of this book, I traveled throughout Europe, um, India, throughout the US, and I went to Greece and visited the four sites of the ancient athletic games. And um, they were actual, they have excavated the actual kind of equivalent of a locker room where whether you went to exercise or to compete, you would undress and you would oil your body with special oils and also use dust so that um, you wouldn't be so slippery, I guess. Um, so there was a whole kind of regimen to preparing yourself to exercise or to compete. And then the most amazing thing, or one of the most amazing things I learned was that with athletes, they believed in ancient Greece that the actual sweat of athletes was a precious commodity. Hmm. And after competing, athletes would scrape the sweat from their bodies with a special tool called a strigil. And um, you can go to many museums like the Met Museum here in New York, or I'm sure there are museums on the West Coast where they have examples of real strigils. They're kind of like long tools shaped like a celery stalk, hmm. scrape, off, scrape off the sweat and oil, and they'd funnel it into a little clay pot and they'd sell it at gymnasiums as a medicinal potion. And it was believed that the sweat of athletes, we're talking about like superb athletes, the, you know, the more accomplished, the more uh, valuable, um, they would sell it as a medicinal potion and um, for a lot of money. But the funny thing is that they didn't believe it was something you'd put on you like to become a better athlete or to run faster or to lift more heavily, but they used it for uh, some of the more kind of embarrassing and uncomfortable dermatological problems like hemorrhoids mm. and genital warts and dermatological things. So they believed that the sweat contained the essence of erite, which is a Greek term for excellence. Mm. Um, I suppose you could almost imagine why that makes sense, that, it ex that these athletes were exuding this special quality but it sounds at the same time pretty disgusting because i'm sure sure it really smelled pretty funky but <laughs> that um that sweat potion sweat and oil had a name it was called gloios g-l-o-i-o-s and gloios was sold at gyms in ancient greece it's so we just uncovered we had Curiali is the first is the first social media influencer with the publication of his book, the, the fitness influencer. Now we have the first supplements, right? The first supplement. So this is, I mean, but when you look at it, I mean, this is really what drives a lot of the modern fitness industry. And, and Bill, I think, I mean, we would, I'd have to hit stop on the record, but I think there would be a profit model in here for taking some sweat from some very fit young men down in the uh, down in, in Soho and maybe remarketing that. But that's another conversation. That's a whole other conversation. You know, you know <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's not a bad idea. I'm sure I, people I, would use it. I'm sure. I, I'm sure I am sure there's a market out there for the sweat of healthy, active, vibrant young men. But I'll just just uh, yeah. 
I just get some Olympic athletes and NBA players and get their sweat and bottle it and sell it. But but, but what we're doing, but in all honesty, we're doing NFTs now, and I barely understand this, but we're doing images of like the, the these classic images from sport, like a, a Mike Jordan slam dunk, are now being sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars for. So who knows where we could go? I mean, we might have, I might have to follow up with you on this, but but now, so where do we come? So when we look at this, when did we, we kind of lost. So during during the church, during the height of the church, and, and during kind of the height of, of Catholicism, we kind of lost this this drive toward towards exercise and towards health. When did it it started coming back in the Renaissance in the mid 1500s, 1600s? But when did it peak? Because where, where I want to get to is like how is our modern industry influenced by what happened in like the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries? Because I think a lot of people out there might not be aware of the era of physical culture. And this is that's more of a 19th century thing. But how did we evolve to that point? Well, I think what first had to happen is there had to be a better understanding of how the human body works. And a lot of that begins to happen during the um, 1800s or 1700s, 18th century, um, so forth, with William Harvey's discovery, as we already discussed. Um, But many other discoveries about how the human body actually works. Another important milestone is the Industrial Revolution um, and how that had an impact on people's thinking that to be sort of simplified going from working in the fields to working in factories, there was a concern globally that people had become too sedentary and that triggered a new movement to get people exercising. And for the first time really uh, in history, to include women as well as men, women and children as well as men. That's when you begin to see women entering the picture uh, for exercise. Um, but yeah, it took, um, it took time. The Enlightenment was a period when there was a great advance in understanding how the human body works. And um, what had been intuitive perhaps in antiquity became much more science-based in the 18th century. And then there are these cultural forces like the Industrial Revolution and the women's rights and women's suffragette movements, the 18th and 19th centuries that sort of intersected and um, became part of what triggered the encouragement of women to exercise as well. One of the challenges that I had in writing my book, Sweat, was I really wanted to find when did women enter the picture, you know, and begin to exercise as much as men. Um, and it really isn't really isn't until the uh, late 18th and early 19th century. And that's but that's and I think that's interesting because even now today, Bill, we, we have this struggle about trying to get get women to be comfortable with strength training. And I interviewed Kathy Smith a couple of months ago, and, and Kathy is a very well-known um, fitness figure who's now in her, I think she's almost 70. I, I got it wrong last time, but I'm, let's just say Kathy was very popular in the 70s and 80s, so she's a little more mature yeah. now. I won't put a specific date on it. Okay. But she said, even in the 1970s, Bill, in the 1970s, they were telling women not to strength train, right? They are yeah, telling women, women weren't, weren't strength training. But just to contextualize this, now, if I walk in, into a gym now, not only do you see more women strength training, but you see more women doing barbell training. Like if I go into one of the gyms I work for now, we'd probably have about 40 or 50% of women and people in the, in, the, in the strength area would be women, whereas even 20 years ago, it'd be about maybe 20% women. And so it's interesting yeah. that you yeah. kind of highlight that. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm a child of the 70s and era of Arnold Schwarzenegger and then later Jane Fonda. So I remember when, you know, you, you would never imagine women lifting weights and being interested in strength training. And back in the 19th century, when it became permissible, really, and encouraged for women to exercise, the figures of that day were encouraging women um, you know, to exercise within the home and to incorporate it into housework and just what you do around the house, which I think was really, you know, fantastic because at least they were being encouraged to do that. And one of the great emancipators for women, and those are the words of Susan B. Anthony, the great women's rights advocate, one of the great emancipators for women was the bicycle, the invention mm. of the bicycle. Right. And the bicycle, which we sort of take for granted now, um, and some people think the bicycle was invented during the Renaissance or something like that, but it actually wasn't. It was during the 19th century and it took a surprisingly long time to perfect the bicycle as we know it today. Um, something like 75 years in between the first very primitive bicycle, which didn't have pedals, but you kind of scooted along with your feet. Hmm. And around 1875, I think, that they introduced um, in the UK what was called the safety bicycle hmm. that really closely resembles what we have today. And following that, there was a ladies' safety bicycle without the horizontal um, rail so that women in their Victorian dress and skirts could mount a bicycle as well. Um, I have a great quote from Susan B. Anthony. I can never remember it, so I have to read it. Who said in 1896, um, the bicycle has done more for the emancipation of women than anything else in the world. Hmm. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel, the picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. Um, before that, before the women's or ladies' bicycle, as they called it, uh, they were considered sort of toys for men or boys. But um, with the bicycle, women were able to have their own bikes and ride. I have some great photographs, including one in the book, of women in their Victorian garb hmm. on bicycles. Yeah. So, so we got we covered we covered social media with the printing press. We covered supplements with the with the sweat of the athletes. And now, so Susan B. Anthony was like the first Soul Cycle promoter. She was the first. <laughs> I mean, but but that's but it's, I'm sure so what I'm true. trying to. But you know when you're looking at words. But you're, how your mind works. But you're just pulling yeah. this. But but that's that's having studied history is contextualizing. Yeah. Okay, why why is that important? Well, you look at that today. You go to any cycling room in the world. And probably 70, 80% of the people in a cycling room are going to be women. Yeah. Who knows why? But but getting fit on an indoor bike, and look, it's, it's riding a one-wheel bike to nowhere. I mean, that's what my friend Jeffrey calls it all the time. But you look at it, but it's still – women doing indoor cycling is still empowering them. It's giving them strength. It's giving them stamina. And there's a, there's a, there's a very unique cohesion that happens in a group fitness room that really yeah. you can't replace outside of, of, of anything else. Now, to shift gears a little bit – I found it very interesting, Bill, when you're describing going, what was it, the Spokane Club with your father? How did that, how did that experience tie into, how is that similar to the ancient gymnasiums that you're just describing in Greece? Like, how did, like, your, your experience with your dad in an early health club, how did those right. kind of, how did those line up? 
I, th- I think that had a huge influence on me. Yeah, I grew up in Spokane, Washington. I was the only son um, in a big family. I had five sisters. Oh, wow. And my dad had been a West Point uh, cadet and a almost Olympic level swimmer. And he was very athletic. Mm. Um, we all grew up... Uh, you know, snow skiing in the winter, water skiing in the in the summer. We all swam, um, and because I was the only boy or the only son, uh, he would take me along to all the sporting events that came up in Spokane, um, and to boxing matches and and all kinds of things. And it was I alone, not my sisters, who would be left at home. It was I alone who would go with him to the athletic club, Spokane Athletic Club. Um, which says something about what it was like in the late 60s and 70s. You know, the boy or the son gets to go exercise, um, mm-hmm. but the girls were left at home, at least in my family. And I think that was pretty common, actually. But yeah, the athletic club in Spokane was not that different from, in a lot of ways, from the gymnasiums of antiquity. Definitely a place for men mo- overall. And um and there was weightlifting and there was a running track and there were um, punching bags for boxing and, and so forth. And so, yeah, I mean, his influence was was great. I think, you know, my whole interest in working out and exercise started with him and in, in as a boy. And then I just continued on. I remember when I was 16 or 17, I got... Um, a set of weights from my own bedroom with a bench press. And I got Arnold Schwarzenegger's um, encyclopedia of bodybuilding, which still today is a great guide to bodybuilding. I had the first edition of that. And Schwarzenegger came on the scene um, around that time, uh, first in the documentary Pumping Iron, but then in his early movies. And, you know, that whole idea or that image of this big hypertrophied bodybuilder's body was unlike anything many people had ever seen before. And that became something that men at first aspired to and later women. So Schwarzenegger had a big influence, but there were, there were predecessors to Schwarzenegger too. There was a figure in the 19th century called Eugene Sandow, who was, he was the Schwarzenegger of his day, not only because he was a bodybuilder who happened to be genetically gifted with a great muscular physique, but he was a real entrepreneur, um, open gyms under his name, uh, wrote a series of books, lectured around the country. He traveled with the Zigfield Follies as a strongman. Um, he was such an entrepreneur that he would do posing and then charge people, men and women alike, just to like squeeze his biceps. Um, just to touch these muscles that were just not, not common at the time. Well, um, have you ever been to, so I was going to Sandow ask, even, you know, traveled to India and, you know, around the world. So he wow. became like a global figure. And Sandow is one of the figures in the physical culture movement that you kind of brought up earlier. So the physical culture movement of the 19th century and early 20th century was this new focus on the body that was reflective of ancient Greece and and I want to come I want to come back to that in a second. But what I loved about Bill, when you write about describing the the Spokane Athletic Club, it really took me back as a teenager to to being with my dad and going down to the YMCA in downtown DC when I was like sixteen, seventeen, and playing racquetball with my dad. 
And this yeah. was the late 80s, like 88, 89. And, and the gym was, you had a couple universal machines, you had the bench press. And, and I remember going there on a Saturday with my dad to go play racquetball. And it was mostly men. And it was, and, and you know, it was down to the, the, the YMCA in DC is down near DuPont Circle, which is a gay neighborhood. And it was mostly, mostly gay men. And, and it really is, it's a very interesting thing. So we look back, let's, let's shift the physical culture for a second. Because this was really a big era of influence that really changed kind of – it really got people moving. And I'm a big fan. I've read, I read Ed Morris's books on, on Teddy Roosevelt and I've read a couple different histories on Teddy Roosevelt. But we can classify – or sorry, I should ask this as a question. Could we classify Teddy Roosevelt as one of the early influencers from this era? And, and talk a little bit about – if you could describe a little bit about what the scene was like at, at the turn of the 19th to the 20th, 20th century. I think absolutely you could. And it's kind of interesting now that I think about it to think about the role of different presidents in the United States, the role they played in influencing fitness and athletics, whether Teddy Roosevelt or JFK, um, who's of course so well known for that. But it was actually President Eisenhower who started what is known as the President's Council on Fitness and Exercise. Um, so, um, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt for sure. And that whole era of physical culture, again, kind of a reaction to the Industrial Revolution and, and getting people moving a new kind of fascination with the human body and um, being outdoors, doing outdoor activities, um, not just playing games um, or sports, but really exercise for its own sake. Well, and that's it because we we had that era, right? You you had Sandow, you had Atlas. I know it was Charles Atlas. I think was a mid mid twentieth century. Who's the other? There are a couple. There there are big strongmen that were influencers in the late in the late eighteen hundreds. Yeah. You had Teddy Roosevelt and you had others. But then it kind of around the nineteen teens and must be. You know what? I hadn't even thought about this, but it was probably around the Spanish flu pandemic in the in the nineteen around what we're dealing with now. But it was probably that Spanish right. flu pandemic. That kept that, that kind of interrupted it. I had never thought about that. Would that be? Um, that's, there's a lot of truth to that, and in fact, there was you know that pandemic. There's a lot of similarities between then and now. I mean, yeah. there was even mask wearing back then promoted um, against the Spanish flu, and um, promotion. Like I found newspaper articles promoting the idea of people getting outside into the fresh air um, to keep from getting sick. Hmm. And there was a whole campaign for children called um, flu games where they had, you know, organized games to get kids outside playing in the fresh air um, and as a way to keep them from, from getting ill. Um, and of course, you know, we know the same today. It's been really interesting during this pandemic, especially when the gyms were closed, to see how, of course, so many of us just adapted by working out at home. I did for sure, doing push-ups and pull-ups and all that sort of thing. But it was really interesting, too, to see how people gathered naturally, sort of intuitively in parks, in outdoor spaces, either to exercise together. So there were, of course, like kind of spontaneous group fitness classes happening in parks in Manhattan, or people just went to individually exercise, but I think they wanted to get out of their apartments, out of their homes, into the fresh air. I happen to live in the West Village, and there are some really nice um, landscaped piers where stretches of grass, and I was amazed how crowded they became. 
it was actually a really kind of uplifting scene. And also, you know, kind of underscored the social aspect or almost community center aspect of gyms. That even though the gyms were closed, people wanted to socialize. And one way to socialize and come together is with exercise. Um, and that continues. Even though gyms are back open, people are still down at the pier exercising en masse. And, and, and that, that's been one of the coolest things. Here in Southern California, I've seen more people walking the last two years than ever before. Mm-hmm. And, and we never would have yeah. thought that. Now, I want to go down a quick, a quick thread roll here, if you'll, if you'll permit me. But sure. you, talk about, you talk about the socialization and you talk about that environment. And, and just so you know, I don't, have you ever crossed paths with uh, Dr. Natalia Petrozella? She's actually in Manhattan, and and no, she's actually she she's the, she's she's the official historian of all about fitness. So she she and I become friends, and we had a, a good we had a great conversation a few years ago about presidential fitness. It was when when uh, the former president came out, and it was just he had some stuff about how he doesn't exercise, and so she and I talked about how he really is. You know, you can look at Reagan, Bush, all all through all through the last 30, 40 years, all the presidents have been sort of fit. Um, but what I want to talk to you about a little bit is that is that era between maybe the 1930s and about the 1960s or 70s, because fitness was happening, but it was a little bit more underground and it was a little bit more centered around the gay community. Because yeah. Dr. Prezzella and I also had a different conversation about that one year around Pride. She had wrote a great piece about how um, the gay community, and I apologize for listeners, I mean the entire spectrum, lesbian. I don't mean to exclude yeah. anybody. I just want to put that out there. I don't know what the proper term is now. I just I think you, the I entire the entire community. Yeah. Um, yeah. But 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 a little bit. But I think that's very unique, and I think we have to acknowledge that for a period of time, the only place where men could go and socialize and be with other men was a gymnasium. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's kind of ironic in a way that one of the leaders in that area area was were YMCAs. And, and I say that there's a kind of irony there because we talked earlier about how with the rise of Christianity, exercise sort of disappeared and was disapproved of. And then with the establishment of the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, you know, they came with gyms and working out was part of that whole ethos. Um, so there was a complete, you know, 360 from the attitude in the third and fourth century to the establishment of YMCAs. Um, one point I want to make that I think what really surprised me was that indisputable scientific evidence for the benefits of exercise, real scientific evidence, didn't come until the mid-1950s. Um, as we've said, everyone from Hippocrates, Galen, and Plato uh, to Mercuriali had an intuitive sense that exercise is good for you. And in the 19th century also. But there was a figure in London, in Britain, in the 1950s, who came up with a very ingenious scientific study that proved that physical activity um, benefits health and mm-hmm. increases one's lifespan. Um, and his study was based on the conductors and operators of double-decker buses in London. I've heard of that. And he studied them for one year. And what he found, I think he studied like 30,000 men, and I think it was all men who drove and operated these buses, conductors as well. The Those who had to, those who drove and just sat behind a wheel all day, 
they had a much higher morbidity and died at a younger age than those who are hopping off and on the double-decker bus and going up and down the stairs all day long as part of their job as conductors, and that they were much healthier it's, um, and lived longer and had fewer health problems than those who just sat behind the wheel all day. And he then replicated that study with postal workers, comparing those who delivered the mail and walked all day compared to those who were back in the office and sitting at desks, same findings. Is very ingenious, and it kind of established scientifically this whole field of exercise science. Um, and there were others. His wasn't the only, but his is kind of the most famous. And there was a kind of counterpart in the United States that studied children. And it was those studies that led to President Eisenhower to establish the President's Council on Fitness. Um, another, you know, factor was that Eisenhower had a heart attack, mm. a not terribly serious heart attack, but he had a heart attack while still in office and he was a cigarette smoker. And his mm. cardiologist advised that he should stop smoking, which was not widely known at the time to cause illness, um, and that he should exercise more. And um, so that is sort of how that council originated. And then JFK really made it popular. Well, and we realized that the Soviets were way ahead of us in terms of military, in terms of, of, of martial training and fitness. And so my understanding is a lot of that from JFK was, ooh, we're about to, if we go to war again, we might be. Able to, what's that? That is true. And that's been true over time. I mean, you know, that there's so many different influences that come to shape how we feel about exercise and fitness and definitely military training and preparedness is part of it. Well, in, in just the last 10 years, the military has completely changed how they train their soldiers, their, their, their uh, Marines, their, their sailors, because it was run three miles, do push-ups and pull-ups, and they've completely changed their, their fitness requirements. Now, real quick, I want to get ready to, to wrap this up, wrap up the conversation. One of the questions sure. that I had was you, you described taking boxing and going into and, and, and jumping into boxing kind of a little bit later <laughs> than life. What was, what was it that motivated you or that, that kind of like – lit the spark to, I'm going to give boxing a try. Well, it got lit when I was a boy. I mean, my dad took me to some boxing matches and we also saw together a film in Spokane of the great Ali Frazier fight. Mm. And that just kind of got planted somewhere in the back of my mind. And I always wanted to try it. And then when I was living in San Francisco, um, there was a, a serious, serious boxing gym, not very far from where I lived. And I would walk by it maybe while going to the grocery store all the time. And one day, finally, I just ducked my head in and said, you know, do you have any courses? And they said, actually, we have a boot camp starting on Monday. <laughs> it's six weeks long, six days a week, six in the morning. And um, it was 90 minutes. And um, I signed up really without knowing exactly what I was getting into because it was <laughs> it was not like, uh, you know, cardio kickboxing or fitness <laughs> class. It was real boxing. And while I sort of always wondered what it would be like to really kick someone's ass and hit them with gloves, uh, it also meant that I got hit, <laughs> hit hard and knocked down and uh, bloodied and bruised. So um, it was quite a trial by fire, but I made it through the whole six weeks. And um, there's a whole chapter in my book, Sweat, about uh, learning how to box. 
Yeah. And I, but I love that because I, I would teach boxing classes. And so at one point I had a friend training for a Taekwondo tournament. And Brett, if you're listening, um, yeah, that was that was a very interesting experience. But I, I said I would, I, would, I would spar with him, right? I was like, okay, I know a little bit about this. And, and basically I, I became a moving punching bag for him. I mean, I, as he was preparing for his tournament, we did it a few times. I'd kid up. I'd put the pads on, put everything on. And I could hang with him for about 30 seconds. But then – it was, it was a whole different experience. So actually boxing, how much, how much tougher is it than you think? I mean, it's one thing to do the exercises, oh but when you go head-to-head against an opponent, how much, how much tougher was that than you even considered? It was so much tougher. I mean, it was so tough to, to stay with it. I mean, that was one of the things I really learned, to like stay in the moment and, um, and to defend yourself. I mean, the natural response is um, – uh, is to flee. You know, that's like the evolutionary survival yeah. response to like run in the other direction. So, um, you know, it's, I think learning how to defend yourself and just stay in the moment, stay in the fight. And um, yeah, that, that was probably the biggest lesson of all. Um, well, isn't that, but that, but that comes back to one of the biggest benefits about exercise is it trains you to, to be able to handle stress. So you being yeah. able to, to go a th- couple three minute rounds in, in, a, in a boxing ring, that's going to make your presentation at work that Monday or to your board that much easier because you know what you survived that you survived the ring. Now if you yeah. stand up in front of your board, is there? I mean, what is that correlation between stress and exercise and stress in life? Absolutely. Plus, it was like a workout like no other. I mean, I I never knew I could sweat so much. I mean, speaking of like bottling your own sweat, <laughs> I wish I had. I wish I had done that and saved it. <laughs> I can use it now. <laughs> but but your description of that, I mean, what I loved about that was your description of it. And, and you, you could kind of feel your, I don't want to call it, maybe angst might be the right word about, oh, here we go again. <laughs> I mean, would that be the right word about, okay, here we go again. Sure. I'm getting up. I'm getting in there early. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I um, I thought I was really fit, and I was, and I was muscular, and I was strong. But to learn those skills and learn to defend yourself, stay in the moment, stay in the fight, even as you said, just for two minutes. Uh, yeah, it took um, it definitely took some digging down and digging deep. I'm really so glad I did it, and it's a fun. I hope it's a fun part of the book. I trust me, you, it made you made very empathetic. So let's let's come to wrap this up. Um, let's bring yeah. it back to the beginning. So, your what did you learn? So, from your journey on a stairmaster twelve years ago, and, and digging into ancient texts, and and making the trips around the world, and and and, and discussing your, your relationship with your father, what did you learn about why we exercise? What was it that did you? Did, I mean, what was it? Why do we exercise? Because I admit, Bill, to think about it. Going into a gym and seeing a couple hundred people standing in place, lifting up stuff and putting it right back down where they got it or sitting in a meet, it seems somewhat kind of, for lack of a better term, silly, right? But it is such a huge part of our life now and such a part of our culture that really I, I think it is important to take a look back and, and say, how did we get here? What happened with it? Yeah. I mean, a couple things. I learned that exercise has its own unique, long, rich history that's really interwoven with the culture and society of the times. So there's really a, a reflection between the two. But the other thing I learned, because people often ask me, like, um, how do you get inspired to exercise or what motivates you to exercise? And you and I just spoke about how there was this indisputable scientific proof established in the fifties that exercising 
keeps you healthier, helps you live longer. It's all true. But I tell people actually, don't exercise just because you think it'll make you live longer. Life is short. Exercise because it makes you feel good. It makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel good about your body. It makes you feel good in your body. Those are the reasons really to exercise and to find a form of exercise that makes you feel good in the moment, in your body, about your body, that will keep you motivated um, and keep trying different forms, you know, and they may change over time. As I've gotten older, I do a lot less weightlifting, you know, get, I'm not going to get any bigger than I am now, um, unfortunately, but um, swimming, for example, has become really important for me. I love it. And, um, and really learning swimming as a skill. It's a complex motor skill that, um, and, but maybe for someone else, it's running or taking up boxing or something else. But I think um, it can change over time. But exercise because of how it makes you feel now. You never know what's going to happen. Life is short. I, I love that. And, and I loved your, your description about swimming because my daughters both took um, like junior lifeguard courses at the beach this past summer. And so we were at my ex and I were having them practice. And I figured, well, if I'm making them practice, I better get in the pool and do it. And, and man, I mean, getting back it's in and hard. swimming was, I mean, it, it was, and it brought back, I, I did swim team for a couple of years or, or was forced to do swim team. It brought back some bad memories, but to your yeah. point, it is such an important motor skill to do it. Yeah. Now, what I like about this, you, you said you, you, you were into exercise, but how did this, and what I love about this as we wrap this up and what you just said, really, how did this change your relationship with exercise? Like, how do you view, how have you adjusted your relationship? Um, it, you know, it made me try different forms of exercise. It made me grateful that exercise has been part of my life ever since I was a kid. Um, and just to sort of appreciate the history of it. Um, and that this has been something that people have, that human beings have enjoyed or had to do for various reasons for such a long time. I mean, just le learning about sort of the evolutionary reasons behind running and walking and that sort of thing um, that will always stay with me. And, um, and yeah, I think it has definitely changed how I think about exercise and um, motivating people to exercise. You know, it's, it's something you really, you really need to enjoy. You shouldn't suffer. Oh, there's a great quote I'll end with from, um, from Galen back in the second century AD, the Roman physician who said, um, in my opinion, the best exercises of all are those which are able not only to exert the body, but also delight the soul. And what I love about that is I think it shouldn't just be about sweating and exerting the body. It should make you feel good. It should delight the soul. It should bring you some joy, um, make you feel good about yourself. Uh, that. That's I mean that that's why we should exercise exercise to feel better. I'd love that. Bill Hayes delight the soul. Yeah. What's that? And delight the soul. Delight the soul. <laughs> but that's that you go out and have fun, man. I think so many people yeah. look at us. It's like oh, I gotta go. No, exercise is something you get to do. You get to go have fun. You get to go for a swim. You get to go for a yeah. bike ride. Anyway, no, I love that. I love the fact that you're coming at this from a different. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a science geek, but you're coming at this looking at it from humanities and history, and that's so powerful. Bill Hayes, the author of Sweat, and the full title is Sweat: uh, What uh, History of Exercise by Bill Hayes. Right. Where can people get more information about this? Where can people find out about your other writing? Uh, because this isn't the only book you've done, but you do have other sources out there. 
Yeah, this is my seventh book. Um, I have a website. It's BillHays.com, B-I-L-L-H-A-Y-E-S. Sweat will be available as of January 18th, anywhere you buy books. So independent bookstores, but also Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, and all around the world, uh, in the UK, the US, Australia, and hopefully other countries as well. Well, so, Bill, please it's, check it out. It's been, we'll have all the information down below in the show notes, Bill. It's been a wonderful conversation. I enjoy, I enjoy geeking out and I think I'm going to have to put you on the list. And next time I'm in New York, we'll definitely have to either grab lunch or go do a workout together. Cause I certainly would enjoy continuing this conversation. I'd love to work out with you. Let's do it. Stairmasters. <laughs> And there'll definitely be a link for the book in the show notes. The book is Sweat, A History of Exercise by author Bill Hayes. Now, if you want to learn how to exercise, if you want to learn the best types of exercise that you should be doing, whether you're working out at home or working out at the gym, I got two resources for you. One is my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. Smarter Workouts teaches you how to design workouts for strength training, mobility, metabolic conditioning. It teaches you everything you need to know to design your own workout programs. I've been educating personal trainers for more for 20 years now, and in Smarter Workouts, I teach you what you need to know to become your own personal trainer. Smarter Workouts, the science of exercise made simple. There'll be a link down below in the show notes. Book number two is Ageless Intensity. Ageless Intensity, how high-intensity exercise slows down the aging process, will teach you exactly that, how to use high-intensity exercise to mitigate many of the effects of aging and allow you to enhance your health and fitness even as the years pass by. Smarter workouts, ageless intensity, links down below in the show notes. And this, as you can tell, I, I enjoy these type of conversations. Really, this, this conversation with Bill is exactly why I do the podcast. I mean it. I, I love going through a new book and, and kind of getting some ideas and being exposed to different thoughts. And I love the fact that Bill's writing about this who's not... He's not a he's not a researcher. He's not an exercise scientist. He's one of the few people I've interviewed in the, in the recent history that doesn't have a degree in exercise science. He actually has a Guggenheim Award for being a leading journalist and a leading author. But he did a very introspective look at, at the history of exercise that, hey, as a geek, as a history geek, I loved learning about. And hopefully you did too. So looking forward to bringing more content like this. I got a couple of awesome interviews going going on coming coming up. Bill is just the first interview that I'm doing in a series of books on the history of exercise. So if you want to learn more about why we sweat, pick up a copy of Sweat. If you want to learn more how to sweat, pick up a copy of Smarter Workouts. And you can find me, PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. You can go there, sign up for my email list. I'm trying to send out one or two emails a month of just good information, good content that you can use to, to learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. That's my mission to help you, and hopefully I'm doing that. You can reach out to me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness. Um, that's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And hey, as always, thanks for stopping by, and I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.